0: Learn more about your heart health today. Okay, y'all, just a heads up that Easter is early this year. So make sure to get everything you need to host for Sunday, March 31st. From pastel outfits for the whole family to brunch-ready serve wear, Macy's has got you covered. And you're never too old for an Easter basket. So Macy's also has Toys R Us Easter basket goodies, from books to stuffed animals and even slime. You can find it all in-store or online at Macy's.com.
1: Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Buying
0: your first car can make you feel like a superstar, as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. And learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 162 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. Much of what we've been experiencing in various ways over the past couple of months is grief, grief related to the loss of loved ones our previous way of life, and our ideas about what 2020 would look like. To help us dig a little deeper into what grief looks like given our current state of affairs, Dr. Ajetta Robinson returns with us as a guest. Dr. Robinson is a licensed clinical professional counselor, trauma and grief expert, first-generation trauma and poverty disruptor. She is the founder and executive director of Friends in Transition Counseling Services, a trauma-centered mental health practice located in Bethesda, Maryland. She's also the CEO of Legacy Wellness Group, a conglomerate of enterprises dedicated to promoting generational wealth, education, and healing. Dr. Robinson and I chatted about our collective sense of grief, how our rituals around grief have been upended, the importance of processing symbolic losses, and her thoughts about the work that will need to be done on the other end of the pandemic. If you hear something that resonates with you while listening, please remember to share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in My apologies in advance as we did have some tech issues with this interview. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for being back with us today, Dr. Robinson. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm very happy that you were able to join us again. Um, You joined us for session 31 of the podcast. And so it feels very timely to have you back, given that it feels like much of what we have been dealing with in 2020 is grief.
2: Absolutely. I think one of the things that is, is really profound for me is that for the first time in a very long time, I think we're all experiencing or noticing the collective grief that we're experiencing that doesn't always have to relate with people dying. That's happening, but we're recognizing that grief manifests as a result of other experiences as well. And I think that's opening up a dialogue that we haven't had capacity to have in a while.
0: Yeah, you talked about that a lot on your last visit, you know, that grief is much more than just us losing loved ones. Can you talk a little bit about some of those symbolic losses?
2: Absolutely. So I first want to say that grief is a universal experience that is unique for each of us. And so we will navigate a variety of spaces, nonlinear processes that are triggered by not just the death of a loved one, but some of these day-to-day losses that we experience, such as things that are really being amplified right now because of this pandemic and some of the, the racial injustices that are occurring, such as loss of safety, both emotional, psychological, and for some physical as well, loss of stability, loss of routine, loss of some of these milestones and anniversaries, some are experiencing loss of control, loss of income, loss of identity, all of those are symbolic losses. And here's the thing. The body doesn't know that the loss is symbolic. It grieves the same as if the loss was physical. And so it's so important because I often hear people minimize their losses because no one died, right? And so I think that is an it's an unfair comparison to make. It is a unique experience and the body is going to do grief work regardless of what the trigger is. And so that's important for us to just know
0: and understand. That is such an important point. Can you say a little bit more about how grief sometimes shows up in our body?
2: Absolutely. And so it can show up physically in our body. And oftentimes that is what first alerts us that something isn't okay, is that we are physically feeling it. We might feel pain in our stomach. It might be some GI issues such as just normal pain, right? What feels like issues digesting food. It may be, you know, like diarrhea, things like that. We feel it in our joints, even. Numbness in extremities is pretty common. Chest pain, migraines, loss of memory, concentration, all of those things. Even we've seen folks present with respiratory issues, right? That feel like they are physical or biological in nature But there really be psychosomatic complaints as a result of both grief and trauma, right? And so the body stores all of that, especially if we're in a prolonged, activated state, like we have been in this pandemic that's now followed up with the racial injustice and unrest that's occurring. All of those things are heightened states of being, which requires the body to operate on a very different level, which often means that we are heightened cortisol levels, which is never great it's, it, that wears on the body, right, physically and psychologically. So all of those things are responses to both grief and trauma that we may not necessarily code as breathing.
0: Mm. Yeah, and you know, as I'm listening to you talk, I am finding myself overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to this this collective grief that you were talking about, right? So many of us have been sheltering in place or at least, you know, modified connecting with others Mm -hmm. for quite some time now. Lots of people have lost loved ones. We have lost really all sense of normalcy at this point. And like you mentioned, just continuing racial injustices. And so I'm wondering what, does processing all of this grief even look like compared to maybe when you would maybe just lose a job but other things are going okay in your life
2: yeah and so i think that the ambiguous nature of loss right and and that it's so there's really no domain of our life that isn't impacted normally you know when our personal life is going to you know in a handbasket, right, (laughs) (laughs) automatically in the dumpster because of things that are happening. We're usually able to, you know, go to work and and disconnect from that and block it out. Well, we have, we're doing all of that in, in our homes, right? Many of us are, or we're going into spaces, office spaces that aren't feeling safe and that aren't, we're grieving there as well, right? We are triggered there as well, so there's no escape. And so, even though we don't typically want to use escapism as a coping mechanism, it does minimize that feeling of overwhelm because we're not constantly having to encounter it and grapple with it. We can you know, do some of the grief work and walk away from it so that it isn't this overwhelming, totally encompassing experience. And that's what we're seeing is that there's no there's no relief, right? There's no relief from what's happening and there's no end in sight, right? I think that is also compounding it. And so our normal things that we might use, such as, you know, disconnecting and hanging out with friends or, you know, going to the movies or other ways that we're able to just modulate the amount of emotions we're having to contend with, we don't have those resources right now. They're not available to us in the ways that they were. And actually on the other end, right, is that we now have this overstimulation of things that's actually not allowing us to check out, right, and so we're engaged in social media in a way that even though we were on social media before, we usually had breaks because we had to go do something, right, or go be somewhere, or, you know, whatever it might be, get in the car, what have you, there was these breaks in that exposure that now we're just being flooded, right, and many of us didn't have great boundaries around or, or um, maybe the insight that we needed or awareness that we needed around what our boundaries were around how much we consume, right? Or the things that we do to help re-regulate ourselves. We were kind of just managing it in really, I think, a distancing kind of way, right? Distancing ourselves from the trigger by being busy, with people, with things, with work, whatever. And now all of those things that we normally use to cope aren't really available in the same way, right? So we're having to relearn that as well. So that's one of my concerns is that we're seeing more complex grief, which is often a result of uh, traumatic experiences and cumulative and compounded grief experiences, like what many in the black and indigenous people of color groups are experiencing as a result of repeated exposures, right? My concern is that, one, it it is occurring, and then, two, that this population is disproportionately impacted, but also underrepresented in the healthcare, mental health care service system, right? And so, less likely to either receive treatment or receive culturally competent care, and then the amount of clinicians we have that are actually trained to treat complex trauma in this population. So, I'm really, I, I am concerned about what this all means for the overall health and healing for this particular population, which I'm a member of, right, Mm -hmm. and I'm aware of being, you know, I'm not unaffected by all of these things.
0: Right, right, yeah, I echo your concern there, and just, you know, am thinking about, like, even if you didn't necessarily come into this with different layers of trauma, it definitely feels like there's enough going on now that would and Just you yeah, it would it would it would trigger the complex Absolutely. trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, what kinds of things do you feel like we might be able to do? Well, what kinds of resources maybe should we be trying to kind of store within ourselves to try to work through some of this grief?
2: Again, because it is not kind of your simple grief, and it's not happening. Simple being that there's no violent or traumatic component to it. Given that that is not the case, I think that it is so so important that we give ourselves permission to seek professional support. I think that that is going to be more important now than it has ever been is that we are think real with ourselves about what our coping strategies are. Some of them, they aren't working for us right now, right? And so being able to kind of evaluate and, and be honest about where we need support. I think we are so used to helping others. This goes for us clinicians, but also for everyday people. We are so used to helping others that we haven't really cultivated a habit of receiving support. And so when people are asking you how you're doing, we're so used to saying, I'm fine. So we're not even telling the story or naming the thing that we're struggling with, right? And so that's going to be a big part of it. A big part of grief work is just naming the thing. Grief and trauma work is naming the injury, the wound, wherever you, the feelings, right? And so that is going to be important. A lot of times in grief work, we do this through narrative work or storytelling it's important that we have spaces to do that that aren't triggering to other people. And so one of the reasons that we want to create the habit of talking about it is so that we don't do the verbal vomit. And that becomes overwhelming to whoever's on the receiving end because we've been storing up the story that whoever listens longest gets it, right? And so if we're able to do that more often, whether it be actually talking to people or support groups, or journaling, that we have a space to get it out so it can metabolize in a place outside of our body so that we can make sense of it in a way that isn't just holding on to it. And so that piece is really really important, again, because if we hold it, it literally stores in our body and it affects other, it affects us on a global level, right? Finding ways to be connected to the people who are good for you, good in your life. And if we don't have them, be intentional about seeking those communities and relationships, even in this socially distant space that is still possible, utilizing technology, online, offline groups. Um, phone, things of that nature. And so really being creative and leaning into that. And then in the name of loss, in the interest of honoring that, that we've lost, naming it, seeking support around those experiences, as well as finding a way to find meaning in that and not in the loss itself, but in what life looks like afterwards. And this is the part that is so important to the grief and healing work, but that for some of us feels like it's escaping us because our everyday world is changing. So how do I find meaning in life post loss when I don't even know what life looks like. And so in that instance, what does it look like today? What are the things that you can do or choose to not do today that honors what you've lost? And so sometimes for some of us, that's giving ourselves permission to not do things that actually don't serve us anymore. We do them because we're so used to doing them or we do them because of expectations around doing them, right? This might be saying, you know, today I actually need a mental health day from my job. And yes, I'm working from home, but today I cannot do this work. And that may be the best way you can honor where you are in your grief journey today. And tomorrow might present itself with something new. What are the routines and the rhythms rather that you can reestablish in your life based on what your body and emotions are telling you that you need? Right. And so I've been helping clients create these routines that create some predictability about their day because there's so much that they know longer. that it's really important that we find those when we can, because the essence of trauma is a loss of safety, including the loss of routines. Right. And so the ways that we can capture those things is really important to our overall sense of self.
0: Yeah, you know, that reminds me of something you shared the last time you were here, just about how grief often strikes the hardest at night, right, when things have kind of calmed down for the day and, you know, you're more kind of alone with your thoughts. But now that night and day really kind of run together and it kind of feels hard to know when is cutting off time, so to speak. I'm wondering if you're seeing any differences in that.
2: I'm seeing it just be more pervasive and it feels so intrusive because it's happening. It's certainly still happening at night because that's still when we're most quiet, most still, and your brain's like, Hey, you have time, you're available, let's Let's experience that or let's work through that. But now, because we're not so distracted by busy, right, whether it be our commute or extracurriculars, whatever it is, the body's like, oh, we have time, right? We're available. And so it it feels intrusive because it catches up off guard because we're doing something as monotonous as washing dishes. Um, We're not using the same kind of capacity that we might be doing if we were at work or what have you, and so the body's attempting to do reparative work whenever it feels like there's resources it can divert to doing that, and so we're just seeing it happen, and combined with the fact that we're exposed to stimuli because we're online, we're watching the news, we're in these Facebook groups, we're on Instagram, all of these things is keeping us very much grounded in the triggers, and so it makes sense that we're being flooded throughout the day as well.
0: Something else that I believe has been contributing to our grief and trauma is continuing to consume videos and stories about Black people dying at the hands of the police. Can you share a little bit about the impact that might have on us? And so we're consuming these
2: this content throughout the day that actually is negatively impacting us, right? And so it's creating what we call a vicarious trauma response just by the consumption of watching the videos or reading the articles that detail the deaths of of the people, right? The people that we've lost, whether it be to COVID or due to some of the racial and police brutality that's, you know, being amplified right now. And so that certainly is happening because again Even if you aren't watching the video and you're reading the stories or reading the Facebook post or things like that, your body creates an image of what you've heard, what you've seen, and it stores it in your brain and your body. And so vicarious trauma or secondary trauma is created anytime we're hearing, watching or experiencing trauma through a means other than direct witnessing and victimization. So it doesn't have to happen to you. Through secondary vicarious exposure, you can develop the same symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we got to be mindful of our own mental health and wellness as you honor the lives that are being lost. You can bear witness to to seeking justice without being witness to their injury and to their death.
0: Mm -hmm. This is the part that I really struggle with because I, I of course, know that oftentimes it doesn't feel like we can even begin to get justice, especially in Mm -hmm. the cases of these racial incidents, right? Because if there is not video and so then in the attempt to like call attention to it and make sure something happens, people are sharing the video everywhere, right? And I don't think that we always think about how psychologically impactful it is for us to keep mm-hmm. the videos and the stories and, you know, all in the call for justice. Absolutely. It is traumatic.
2: It is absolutely traumatic. It is another piece that is is compounded by this race-based component, right? Because we know, history and, and present events tell us that if we aren't advocating, right, and that that feels like the bearing witness part, then other people will look at this video and see something very different. And so we have felt a responsibility to to witness, right? So that we can be preservers of justice, right? So that we can advocate and we do that by knowing. And so I think also part of it is in, in our own way, wanting to make sure that that person that we've lost that they they weren't alone, that their their life has meaning. And we mistake that by, by thinking that we have to witness the thing that occurred, right? In order to be able to fully tell their stories or fully seek justice for them, because there's such discrepancy in the way these events are rules, right, or handled with the, the police and the way that they're covered in the media. And so we have been become responsible for shaping the narrative because we can't rely on those that we should be able to, or at least it's the feeling. We can't rely on the stories that are being told about us and our loved ones and our those that we identify with because they have consistently misused the narrative. They've consistently mistold the stories, right? And that has been uh, an, a contributing factor to the
0: miscarriage of justice, mhm, absolutely. So the other thing that has been really upended throughout the coronavirus is that we are not able to gather to send mm-hmm. a loved one off. You know, we love a good homegoing service, mm-hmm. right I mean, we mm-hmm. have had to either forego that altogether, or they look completely different. So can you talk a little bit about how the change in that ritual that we are used to is also impacting grief? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, it is so complex. Again, I feel like I keep using that word, but it's the best way to describe it. The ambiguous nature and disconnect that many are feeling in these funerals or rituals is profound. I had a client. I'm going to blend some of them together for the sake of confidentiality, but imagine kind of being at a funeral for your grandmother and not being able to console your mother because of a need to keep her safe and thus denying both of you the comfort of touch and togetherness that we thrive on contact emotionally and physically. We're relational being, but we're having to choose between feeling connected and being safe. It's a natural, the body and the brain, they don't understand the deprivation that we are required to maintain in the the name of safety. The body is trained to survive. And so what my concern is, is that we are actively and intentionally social, social distancing, but it's desensitizing ourselves to repeated isolation and deprivation of touch and connectedness and community that I think is going to further impact our ability to emotionally regulate. We're already seeing this. We're seeing heightened stimulation-seeking behavior such as eating and you know consumption of television and shopping. And so we're coping in other ways because we're trying to connect, right? We're seeking stimulation because we've numbed ourselves against the disconnect and being able to really be fully present with our loved ones and honoring what's already a very difficult life transition, a death, a loss of job or whatever it might be. And so I'm concerned about that disconnect that we're having to impose in the ways that we are training ourselves to not be present, because we can't be right um, in a full body experience way, because we have to disconnect the physical from the emotional in order to remember to maintain six feet of distance at a funeral. It is a very unnatural thing, and so my concern as as doing grief and trauma work is the reintegration component that I believe will create some retriggering when we do have you know these delayed memorials that people are already looking forward to or planning because they feel like the ones that they did via Zoom didn't do their loved one justice, or they they still need to do the in-person one whenever it's safe to do so. But the desensitization and the disconnect, I think, is going to create a re-triggering of mourning and thus more complex trauma as we begin to reconcile that we've actually, the body has already gone through these feelings, but we disconnected ourselves from it because we had to. Um, and so what happens when we attempt to reintegrate that, right? And do we actually feel safe? Are we able to engage or will it become this performative expression component that leaves us feeling numb and disconnected all over again? And so the reintegration of that, not only trauma narrative, but healing piece is where I'm kind of most concerned about what that means for us long term.
0: So I'm wondering when you are talking with clients or maybe even for people who are listening, should there maybe be a second thought about whether there should be a more public gathering when it's safe for us to gather if you've already had like the Zoom memorial or something?
2: Hmm. I think people. I think people need that. Um, and so I have continued to encourage clients to um, continue to plan those. But I have encouraged them to still do the work now. Um, for some folks, because they haven't had the physical gathering or they never even had a funeral, the loss isn't actually real because COVID made it hard to see that person anyway. And so I think that is going to come full circle. I think. Preparing for that to be a re-grieving and a re experience is going to be important, but thinking about what are the rituals and the grieving traditions that we can still engage in, right? At the core of some of those rituals or traditions is a purpose. Can we identify what the purpose is and still do that in a different way. And so we have to reimagine the ways that we can do the honoring and the memorializing in the meantime, right? Because I think not doing it or not preparing ourselves for having to redo it and that all of those feelings will feel brand new again is preparing us to be really infected in ways that we just can't anticipate. Right. And so I think if you can seek support again, formally and informally do that now, do the online gatherings. If you can do authentic check-ins and listening, how are you able to honor your loved one's life today and what that means for your life to the best of your ability? I think going through those tasks is going to be really, really important Because I would hate for someone to encounter those things for the first time at that second memorial or whatever it might be. Again, I'm concerned about the complexity and the compounded factors that are likely to occur.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing, you know, kind of going back to our earlier conversation about the fact that grief is not just the loss of a loved one, I think it is difficult for people to sometimes conceptualize these other like symbolic losses, like you mentioned, because there are so many rituals around the loss of a loved one, right? Like we know the things to do or the things to do. And for more symbolic losses, there aren't those same rituals or traditions. Are there things that you would suggest that people can maybe facilitate for? themselves or with their support system or with their therapist as a way to have some tradition and ritual around these symbolic losses?
2: Yeah. And so a lot of these are around, you know, if if it's a loss of a relationship, there's things that we can do. We lose parts of ourselves and relationships, even when they're good, right? And so there's a reclaiming process that we can go through. There's a a self-discovery or rediscovery process. You know, there's a cleansing process that's a part of rituals and mourning when they're symbolic that can apply to a variety of different losses. It really depends on what the loss is and, and what we're wanting to maybe restore or renew. I think identifying what we want life to look like for ourselves. What are the things that are potential barriers and being able to do kind of our own self work. Sometimes we have a lot of guilt. That's actually a very common emotion and shame um, around you know, if we lost our job, right, during this pandemic, there's a lot of shame in how much of our identity is wrapped in that job. And so what are the way or sometimes we've stayed at a job too long, right? Or we feel like we have given our best years to a job that didn't value us or whatever. And so one honoring that that sense of loss, but also giving yourself permission to reimagine the ways your skill sets or your passions are still alive and, and can be kind of recreated in different experiences, right? But we still have to grieve those losses. And so I think giving yourself permission to not discount the symbolic loss and go through the normal mourning process like you would with the physical loss. And then what does life look like post that? I think COVID is making that interesting... For us, because we just don't know what the day-to-day is going to look like, but there are still things that we can do, um, whether they be going back for additional training or for some of us, it's giving us space to be and to not do for the very first time in our life. And And being able to be okay with that, that sometimes that's, that might be exactly what we need if we have the room to explore that because we have been doing for so long that what might it look like if we're actually still on purpose, what might we find and learn about ourselves, about what we actually desire for us when we're able to do that. And so I think that's a unique process for everyone and giving yourself the space to explore that with someone that can do grief work with you.
0: So, you know, the other thing that I have been thinking about throughout our conversation is just how, you know, like you mentioned, we are all experiencing some level of collective grief related to everything that is happening and how a lot of our bandwidths are very low at this point. Right. And so usually, you know, within your sphere of support, you know, somebody is kind of on a full tank and so they can be there a little bit more for other people. Right. And now, probably most of us are operating at a half tank or lower. And so I'm wondering if you have ideas about how we can continue to take care of ourselves so that we can continue to show up, but also how we might be able to set boundaries when we want to be able to be there to support somebody who might be grieving. Yeah,
2: again, I'm a big fan of therapy, your faith exercise. Those are all different things that you can do to take care of yourself. Journaling, um, some of the normal coping stuff, right? But also giving yourself permission to disconnect, right? So giving yourself some downtime, again, not when you're sick and worn out, but Again, in a, in a way to restore yourself, um, giving yourself space for creative things, storytelling, music, and art are really restorative practices, therapeutically, both formally as well as informally. I think that listening to your body. I talk about routines a lot, but I think in this space we have to be intentional about rhythms. And so given that our day to day is changing, our routines might feel outside of our reach. But if we listen to the rhythm of your body and just really getting connected with self your body tells you what it needs. And sometimes it's a midday nap, right? And not as a way to escape, but because we actually didn't sleep well last night because that gets disrupted too in the midst of grief and trauma, right? And so listening to those rhythms is really important. Sometimes your body needs movement. You feel it because your hips feel like they're stacking up. You lose sensation in your toes. You need to move your body. Listen to that rhythm. And so those are some self-care things that I think are important. I also think giving us, again, a lot of this is mindset. We have been trained and conditioned to be available and accessible. That actually isn't what most people need from you. People benefit from you having good boundaries. And sometimes it is our lack of boundaries that keeps people in a place where they feel codependent on us because we have a need to feel needed, right? And so I think boundaries are your best friend. They have to be. And it's not about creating a barrier to accessing you. It's about creating a boundary around your resources and conserving that so that it can be used more effectively for those who actually need it, including yourself, right? Creating a boundary around access, whether it be you act giving information or receiving information. I think boundaries are really, really important. They get a bad rap, but they are so important for keeping you intact. I think those are some of the things that we want to be intentional about is intentionally being not available so that you can refill your own cup is important, especially because none of us are unaffected. I also. think that it's really, really important that we are mindful about the ways we are evaluating the way other people are coping or dealing. Because I've seen friendships unravel in the midst of trauma and chaos, because we are not clear that somebody is in it with us, or they're not available in the ways we need them to. But if we can just remember that we're all doing the best that we can, and our grief looks different, it doesn't mean we're not doing it, it just means it's different. And it's important that we don't impose our values on other people's grief
0: process. Mm-hmm. So several times throughout this conversation, Dr. Robinson, you said, this is what I'm concerned about on the other side of this, right? And so, of course, I'm not asking you necessarily to read into our future, but I am curious about some of the things that you think we will have to be making sure we're paying attention to as we kind of come out of sheltering in place and, you know, things start to open up a little bit more. What kinds of things do you think we do need to be paying attention to or might expect related to grief?
2: Mm -hmm. I think being re-triggered is going to be a big one. Being re-triggered by everyday things, right? And so it may be having some anticipatory grief around going back to work, that is is normal right it 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 is normal in general it is heightened in this setting because uh, covid hasn't gone away right and because we have this additional layer around the injustice and, and still navigating what life looks like as we embark on kind of rewriting some of the fabric of our society, right? And so we may not be sure how we're going to be treated if we walk into the grocery store or other spaces, right? All of those things create some anticipatory grief, but also some anxiety around that. But knowing that the anxiety comes with the grief, right? The loss of normality, loss of of the norms, loss of structure, all of those things, I think being acutely aware of what our triggers are and knowing that those can change. We have been removed, particularly thinking about our kids' or even adults who generally have, let's say, society or situational-based triggers, they've likely not been encountering those triggers because they've been at home, where most folks may not experience those triggers that they experience in the workplace or in school or just out in society in general. So we've not had to practice our coping mechanisms around them. And so we might feel ill-equipped or decompensate, right, in the face of those. And so, again, that's another re-grieving or re I think other pieces around heightened anxiety, we're already seeing some impacts of social isolation on increased suicidality. I I think that, um, and many of the reports are indicating this, that the next wave of this pandemic is going to be on the mental health front. It's already here. We haven't even talked about the ways our kids are grieving and the ways that they are missed and the sheer amount of, under the at the level of under resources, right, where we are under resourced to help kids in general, with understanding their language and what grief looks like for them. And so I think those are all things that we will have to grapple with sooner rather than later because we've not. We have been so inundated with just staying safe that we haven't even had an opportunity to be well. And so I think that we have, we're have, we gonna have to reemerge that what does it look like to do more than survive? Because that's where we have been. We have been in survival mode, right? As people trying to stay safe from COVID, as black and brown people in this country, what happens when we have to go back to day-to-day functioning, whatever that looks like, and we're expected to really produce and to thrive and we don't have the coping skills to do so. We don't even know what that looks like anymore. Those are the things that I'm concerned about from a very real, tangible perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So are there any additional resources? You shared lots with us last time, but are there any new resources or things that you think people might want to check out, given what we talked about today?
2: hmm um, and so I think that being connected with NAMI, so the National Alliance on Mental Illness, they have and can access uh, resource groups such as support groups all over the country, the Association for Death Education Counselors, that's for clinicians, but to be trained in, in doing some grief work as well as to identify uh, clinicians who are trained in grief work. So um, I also have um, a book and a, and a training series coming out called The Gift of Grief, um, the workbook actually is free and available already. The book will be out shortly um, where we will we will be doing some of the work around training clinicians as well as parents and educators on recognizing grief in the workplace, in the school environment, in in clinical practice. And so I think one of the best things that we can do is to be able from a personal perspective to really do the work, um, to identify what your loss history is, what your coping strategy is, your trauma history, so that you can get the support that you need Um, And from a clinical perspective, we have to build capacity. For a very long time, clinicians have been saying, I don't do grief work. And my response has always been, if you work with people, you do grief work. That is being called to roost now. um, And we are scrambling to get educated and to get trained. Now is the time to do that. Um, And so looking at some of these programs, um, either through universities or um, some of the formal other programs in grief, I think are going to be important for us to access.
0: Great. And of course, we will include all of those resources in our show notes. And where can we find you, Dr. Robinson? What are your social media handles as well as your website?
2: Absolutely. So I am Dr. Ajetta on Facebook, Dr. Ajetta Robinson on Instagram, and Miss Ajetta on Twitter. And com is my website.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us again and for sharing your wealth of knowledge. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for doing this work and for having me as a guest.
0: I'm so glad Dr. Robinson was able to join us again this week. Don't forget to visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com session 162 to learn more about her or to grab a copy of her workbook. And please share your takeaways with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic and connect with some other sisters in your area, come on over and join us in the Yellow Couch Collective, where we take a deeper dive into the topics from the podcast and just about everything else. You can join us at therapyforblackgirls.com slash YCC. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Learn more about your heart health today. Hey, debit card users, listen up. Discover has something especially for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can start earning cash back on everyday debit card purchases. You heard that right. Cashback on debit purchases because cash back isn't just for credit cards. It's time you also get some love. Oh, and I should also mention that this has no fees, period. Finally, the game-changing checking account you deserve. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit.
1: Discover Bank, member FDIC. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level